you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark 7, 14 and 15. Mark 7, 14 and 15. Um, among, the, among the many things uh, that I'm uh, really lousy at is proofreading. Um, and, and so if, if, you look, if, you, if you look at your outline... Uh, there's, there's a sort of an antichrist heretical uh, statement in the outline uh, that you'll want to correct. Um, point three, point three, where it says disciples are not necessarily defiled by what comes from the inside. Uh, well, that would be pretty much a flat contradiction of what Jesus says in the passage. So, so cross out the word not. Uh, yeah, the not supposed to be in the middle point. It's not supposed to be in the third point. So just scratch that out. I already scratched mine out completely. Um, I scratched it almost right through the paper. Uh, so feeling, feeling so strongly about it. Um, Let's stand one more time. Uh, Mark 7, 14 and 15. And you'll notice if you're reading anything but the King James Bible, which we're using ESV here, um, if you have any modern translation, there's just no verse 16, right? You go from 15 to 17. If you're looking at the King James Bible, there is... Uh, verse 16. And what it says in verse 16 is, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, That's in many, many, many Greek manuscripts, unfortunately. Uh, It's in all later Greek manuscripts and all the earlier ones, that is the oldest ones. It's not there. Which led the critics to believe that somebody... Uh, glossed it because it does make really nice sense here and it would play off of verse 14 really nicely and so they think a scribe added it. Um, but it's, it's, um, it, it's a little up in the air. Nobody knows for sure, but we're, we're not going to deal with verse 16. But that is what it says, and you'll probably have a note in your Bible somewhere that'll take you to the bottom of the page and find... If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. As it's listed, there's just no verse 16. And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are very aware when we look around, we watch the news, if we read the paper, if we pay attention to what is going on in the world at all. That the nations are constantly raging. 
and that there are broad, strong, society-shaping opinions that aren't much more than a meditation on emptiness. All around the world, nations take their stand, and the rulers, they take counsel together against you and your standards, and against the standards of Christ and his righteousness. where many places in the world to acknowledge any interest in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be an outcast, many places to be killed. And we pray for those people today, people who live in places like Iran, parts of Indonesia, North Korea, and many more where that is the case. May you keep them and hold them fast to yourself. We live in a nation that is taking your standards and casting them from us, considering them backwards, foolish, unloving, bigoted, But Lord, we are reminded by the psalmist that your response to that is not to be wringing your hands with a sense of defeat. You don't know what to do and your people don't know what to do. But rather, you assure us that you who sit in the heavens, you laugh at them. You scoff at them for they can actually change nothing. Your anger will one day meet them, and they will be instantaneously dismayed. Lord, we pray that you would make us among those who are able to set the Lord Jesus Christ as our king, for that whom is whom you have made to be king over all the nations of the earth. Lord, may we be ruled by your decrees, by your wisdom. You have raised Jesus from the dead, declaring him to be Lord and Savior and King. So, Lord, we do ask that you would hold us fast, bring us safely through all the trials of this life, all the human traditions that we have to avoid and put off ourselves and to hold fast to your word, to understand it, to shape our lives by it, to handle our sorrows and our afflictions by means of it. And we have many sorrows and afflictions in our congregation in our lives, and especially if you go out just to the broader lives of even our immediate families, just untold levels of concern 
and temptations to despair at times. But you tell us to ask of you, and you will ultimately bring your people into a new heaven and a new earth, the ultimate inheritance. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be among your blessed servants, your children, those who at the end of the day, no matter what else is happening, are those who take refuge in you. We ask for this to be given to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Seated. I believe 30, a little over 31 years ago, I, I went to the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors um, for the first time, 1992, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, where John Piper has uh, been the pastor uh, by that time, just 12 years and had started that conference uh, four years earlier, and so that was the fourth one, and showed up. And the main speaker uh, that year was a, a psychologist, counselor, by the name of, um, I better find his name here, Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb. Four years earlier, Larry Crabb had written a really popular counseling book for Christians that if you saw the cover of it, you would think that the name of it was just Inside Out because those were the two big words right on the cover, Inside Out. But if you looked carefully at it, that was actually just the last two words of the title. And the, uh, the full title was this, Real Change is Possible if you are willing to start from the inside out. One of the early chapters in that book is called Knowing What to Look For. And at the center of that chapter, and really at the center of Crabbe's entire philosophy of counseling and helping people think about their lives, was a single verse from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.13, which reads this way. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. My people have committed two evils. Crab argues, people are struggling in their lives because they've made these same two related, very fundamental mistakes. Mistake number one, They have forsaken the living God. 
And in so doing, they tend to have forsaken the perspective of the word of God. So they don't take God's word for things. They instead decide to figure things out for themselves. And once you have started to do that, then, Crabb argued, you inevitably make the second mistake, which is really a fatal one. Because now what you do is you try to find something that will be a fit substitute for God in your life. And there's no such thing. So now you're doomed to fail. You're certain to fail. Because you, you can't possibly find that thing. It doesn't exist. And Crabbe's argument was, but we try to find it. And we assume, no, 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 no. You can replace God with a tremendously successful career. But you actually can't. No career will be satisfying enough to replace God. You can replace God with a tremendously satisfying marriage, but you can't. There's no marriage good enough to replace God with. And therefore, you'll imagine there's something maybe wrong with your marriage when there really isn't, except for the fact that you're trying to replace God with it, which is why it'll seem so disappointing. Um, Jeremiah says those ideas that we have are like having rejected a fountain, the fountain of God. We dig these cisterns and hope that they will hold the water that God was supposed to hold. But They never do. They never do. And so the fundamental argument that Crabbe makes is before you can really um, begin to put your life back together, you have to start with repenting of that business where you forsake God. You have to re-embrace the living God from the heart. Uh, Because that's where all real fundamental change, really the only place from which it can be launched, is a heart that has centered itself in the living God. Um, Now, once you've forsaken God... In our context, what happens is, well, you, you, you come up with other religious replacements sometimes, is what the Pharisees and the scribes did, and you invent a religion that you can be completely satisfied uh, to God with, and then you can at least pretend, like by doing these things, you can know that you are right with God, and those kinds of traditions are now what Jesus has in his sight. And, and Jesus' response to them is, they're just not true. It's just, it's just not true that it's primarily outside things that defile you. It's just not true. Jesus would affirm, and does affirm in this text, right? Crab's 
book title. No, no. Real defilement always enters and shows itself in you from the inside out. That's where you better be concerned. Watch what's happening from the inside out and work on that. Focus on that. Be sure that you're in a place to have the right inside starting point. State our thesis for this morning this way. Who we are is revealed from the inside out. Who we are is revealed from the inside out. And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Every, everything in these two verses are sort of theology, spirituality, 101 stuff. Right? This is, this, these two verses are like a, you know, a, a huddle in the MBA. If you ever overhear a huddle in the NBA, they're never talking about anything very complex on the break. They may be talking to the best basketball players in the world, but when those guys go into the huddle, what they're talked about is, is stuff like this, just really basic, fundamental stuff. Blocking out, you know, not telegraphing your passes, Keep moving. It's really basic, fundamental stuff. That's what this is. That's what this is. This is the kind of stuff that gets said when you go into a huddle like that. So number one, disciples are shaped by hearing and understanding. So that almost seems to contradict what Jesus is about to say, because that's isn't that outside-in kind of stuff? Um, yes and no. Yes, but ultimately no, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, but disciples are shaped, and this is what Mark is telling us, by hearing and understanding. And he called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Hear me, all of you, and understand. That's the heart of discipleship. We talk about becoming disciples every Sunday. That's why we have a preaching part of the element. That's why we have Sunday school classes. Because hearing the word of God in a message, in a class, reading it in your own Bible is absolutely fundamental, can't do without it, road to discipleship. So hear me rather than listening to and paying attention to and getting swallowed down by, in their case, the traditions of the Pharisees and the scribes, which 
such like traditions are all over the place at all times. So hearing Jesus, absolutely essential to everything. In a couple of weeks, in the, for the fall quarter in Sunday school, we're going to be looking at the uh, at least the first five chapters of the book of Revelation. The opening three verses of the book of Revelation are these. Listen for the place of hearing. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Hearing Jesus is essential. Blessed is the reading of the word of God, but blessed are those who really hear what is read. Jesus makes that point powerfully. You remember in Luke 8, he's got this crowd around him and uh, he's, he's in the middle of it so that when his mother and brother show up, they can't get to him. And somebody works their way through the crowd and tells Jesus, Jesus might want to take a break. Your mother and your brothers are out there waiting to see you. And then Jesus says to them, in the midst of that crowd, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. My mother and my brothers, the the real connection that exists with me, the family connection, the most important connection that can exist with me, comes by means of hearing. Three verses in front of that, just as Jesus gets ready, or Luke gets ready to share this story. Here's what he wrote in Luke 8, 18. Take care then how you hear. He actually uses a a mixed metaphor there, very much on purpose. He says, see how you hear. Watch how you hear. Look very carefully. Make sure that you hear well. And then he goes on to the peace that really does happen from the inside out. Hear me, all of you, and understand. And understand. I quote Kevin Van Hooser all the time to you. You know, the people of God are called together by God. That, that quotation, that's Kevin Van Hooser. Um, I'm going to quote him from a different source. See, this is brand new material now. Uh, 
Ben Hooser wrote a book some years back called Faith Speaking Understanding. And he wrote this. Scripture gives authoritative witness to the identity and significance of Jesus Christ. Disciples thus speak understanding when they talk and walk in accordance with Scripture. Living in accordance with the scriptures, being biblical, is thus the disciples' prime directive. To be a follower of Christ is to be a follower of scripture. In all three senses that follow. So here's his three senses. Number one. To understand the meaning of what Christ says in Scripture. Two, to respond to what he says with obedience. And number three, to go after Christ along the way of Christ. Number three is simply and, and to make obedience the pattern of your life. Growing forward. So you understand, you have to understand before you can obey. Because until you understand, you don't know what he wants you to do, really. So you hear, and then you understand. Uh, I don't know how many years ago it was, we handed out bookmarks like this. Some some of you will remember these. Uh, It had Psalm 11934 on it. Psalm 11934, which is this prayer request. Uh, a prayer request that's repeated in various forms um, six times in Psalm 119, um, all in the same uh, hifil causative form. My two favorites are Psalm, verse 34 and verse 144, but here it is in verse 34. Give me understanding, or cause me to understand, that I may keep your law and observe with all my heart. Cause me to understand, that's the part that only God can really do. That's the inside-out part. Most hearing doesn't go anywhere. Most hearers never change anything. Most hearers don't take to heart anything that was said. That was true of Jesus' own ministry. Most hearers didn't get it. Didn't get it. The psalmist says, you want to be sure you get it, so I'd pray that you get it. That's what you're praying in Psalm 119, verse 34. Cause me to understand so that this word turns into obedience. In my case, give me understanding that I may keep your instruction. Cause me to understand. 
That's an inside-out job that only the Spirit can pull off. We're depending upon him, which is why we ought to be prayerful as a church. We're praying that the Spirit would take the word and cause us to understand and to be changed from the inside out. Secondly, disciples are not, that's where the not should be, are not automatically defiled by outside influences. For there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. And Jesus uh, looks at this idea that the scribes and the Pharisees have about washing, and he is declaring that they are fundamentally wrong. Fundamentally wrong. That washing hands is really key to spirituality. That washing stuff that comes from the marketplace is really the key to spirituality. That, that defiling things that you brush up against, that avoiding those things is the key to spirituality. So that is not true. It's never true that mere things coming at you or into you from the outside necessarily and automatically defile you. Now, as we're going to see, this is a little trickier than it looks. He's just making one point. He's not bringing out all the nuances of this. We'll let Paul at least warn us about some of the nuances uh, related to this uh, in our side text as we go through this second point. But let's just make his opening point plainly by using a very similar example I used last week. I mentioned last Sunday morning, Shirley and I were first married. We go to a, a, a fundamentalist church in, uh, in, in Illinois, Wonder Lake Bible Church, where there was like uh, really five things that really stood out as key to being a member or being a member in good standing and having any belief that you are probably one of the true elect, the real Christians. And, uh, and one of those things, uh, and it was really an interesting combination because I, I, I'd go, uh, that first year we were married, I'd be there Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, pastor Wright was the pastor at that time. He was, uh, that was his 25th year uh, as being the pastor of that church. So I'd known him when I had lived there earlier in the uh, late 1960s. Uh, but I can get Pastor Wright during those 25 years as pastor, I can tell you one thing that he never did. He never entered a movie theater, ever, for any reason, at any time, never, ever, ever. Uh, If he had, that would have ended his pastorate in that church. And the reason he did not enter the movie theater is that if you go to the movie theater, you are worldly. And entering the theater has caused you to be worldly. That's the thinking. Fundamentalist circles. It's that, so you, it's, it, you walk in, worldly. It's worldly. Now at that time, that same time, during the week, every night of the week, pretty much, at that, that first year, I read 
pretty much through everything Francis Schaeffer had written. Francis Schaeffer had been a Presbyterian pastor by this time, however. He uh, was running a ministry called Labrie in Switzerland, someplace, and, uh, and it was plain by reading Francis Schaeffer's writings that he went to the movies and, 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 and offered, in fact, um, critiques and sort of movie reviews, uh, culturally speaking, from the things that he saw there. So here is the fundamentalist tradition um, at work. And this, I hope you see, this is where the dangerous piece of it arrives. In the fundamentalist tradition, who is more afflicted with worldliness? Pastor Wright or Francis Schaeffer? And in the tradition... It answers itself. Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer is more worldly than Pastor Wright. How do you know? Pastor Wright would never go to the movie theater. Francis Schaeffer would and does. And there it is. It's really that simple. And Jesus says, no, it isn't. It actually doesn't work like that. It's quite possible that Pastor Wright is significantly more worldly than Francis Schaeffer. And the only way you can tell is by talking to them about other things than that. Than that. Um, now, Paul is with Jesus in this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is, has said something in an earlier communication that the Corinthians have misunderstood, which is a pattern that they have a, 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 some experience in. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, he's correcting uh, what he's heard is their mistake. So he's told them, you know, a brother that's living in sin and won't repent, shun that brother. And, uh, and, and, and they've started to shun everybody in Corinth who's living in sin and doesn't repent. He said, no, 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 you can't do that uh, because you, you, got, you live in Corinth. Uh, that, you can't do that. That's a dumb idea. Don't try to do that. It won't work. Here's how he put it. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of the world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. In other words, No, no, you can rub shoulders with those people and must. You must. Now, however, ten chapters later, Paul will tell them, although 
defilement does not automatically take place like that, you better watch yourself when you're out there rubbing shoulders like this. You better watch yourself when you go to the movie theater. You better watch yourself. Here's how he put it, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Well, now he's contradicted Jesus. No, no. Because he doesn't believe that happens automatically. He doesn't believe that happens automatically. He means there's a danger of that happening that you better keep in mind. A real danger that you better keep in mind. Don't be deceived. In our text, he would say, don't be deceived that just because these things don't automatically defile you, that they might not end up defiling you. Don't be deceived by that. In fact, realize that bad company does have the tendency, a strong tendency, to corrupt good morals. And then he says one more thing to the Corinthians, this time in the second letter. So how do you keep that from happening? And here's his response. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. Second, this is 2 Corinthians 10.5. 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, this is, this is why, this would have been Francis Schaeffer's argument for why he goes to the movie theater. He goes to the movie theater because lots of people go to the movie theater and he wants to be able to sit down with them. These young people that came from all around the world to Switzerland, to Labrie, looking for answers to life's questions. And he wants to be able to say, did you see this movie? Yes. Did you follow the premise of what the movie was saying? Um, And the premise of what the movie was saying was a lofty opinion generally speaking, raised up against the knowledge of God. And he wanted to be able to critique that opinion and hope to show them that that is inferior thinking to Christian thinking and to take every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ. That's his point. Um, that is Jesus' point. Here, doesn't happen automatically. If you start to think that it does happen automatically, it does this really deadly thing to you. And it really, it did this to all of us. Did this to all of us in the fundamentalist movement. 
we did have an almost irresistible, an almost irresistible tendency to feel superior to a person like Francis Schaeffer once we knew that he went to the movie theater and we didn't. It really does have that tendency to work that way on you powerfully. And if that's where you end up, then Jesus comes to you and says what he said here last week's paragraph, Mark 7, right? You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, This people honors me with their lips and their own humanly devised traditions. All the while, their heart is from far from me. And in vain they worship me because they teach as doctrines the commands of men, their own human traditions. Thirdly, disciples are necessarily defiled by what comes from the inside. Disciples are necessarily defiled by what comes from the inside. Jesus says it this way, the things that come out of a person are what defiles them. Are what defiles them. Now, we, try to, uh, we deny that all the time, right? So here's, here's a kind of, I mean, here's a real simple way that we, uh, we deny that, you know. So we inexcusably lose our temper, and what do we say? You know what? That's not like me. That thing that I just did, that's just not like me. That almost never happens to be. I, I, I very rarely do that. I am not... I am not an angry person. I'm just not. That is not like me. What you just saw me do, totally unlike me. Like, what? What? You can't say that. No, you can't. Far more helpfully, G.K. Chesterton. I was famous. You've heard this before, no doubt. It's quoted all the time. And uh, but uh, major London newspaper posted a little question on their editorial page. Um, write in, tell us what you think is wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote in, very short message. I am G.K. Chesterton. He's tremendously insightful. Right? What's wrong with the world? Defiled people like me live in it. Sinners live in it. That's what's wrong with the world. He's exactly right. That is the point Jesus is making. Just quoted him two weeks ago, coming back to him though, because he's often worth quoting. J.C. Ryle commenting on this, wrote this. There is a deep truth in these words, Jesus' words, which is frequently overlooked. 
our original sinfulness and natural inclination to evil are seldom sufficiently considered. The wickedness of men is often attributed to bad examples, bad company, peculiar temptations, the snares of the devil. It seems forgotten that every man comes with himself or brings with himself a fountain of wickedness. He needs no bad company to teach him. He needs no devil to tempt him in order to run into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. Now, he's not saying that, he's not contradicting Paul. No, no, bad company does work and that there is a devil. But you don't need him to have trouble. You're born with trouble from the inside out from the very beginning. And those of you who are parents, you saw that in your children when they were excessively small. Nobody ever had to teach them to lie. Nobody ever had to teach them to rebel against you. They're good at that right out of the gate. As soon as they can talk, they can lie. As soon as they can do anything, they can defy what they know you wanted them to do or didn't want them to do. And they do. And they do. Ryle's point. For from within, out of the heart of man, Jesus will go on to say in our text for next week, verse 21, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they all defile the person. This is what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. This is why he didn't just say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you need to listen to me. Now, would you please just listen to me? Uh, I'm going to give you some really good advice. No, he says something enigmatic to him. He says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, here's your only hope. You have to be born again. Nicodemus didn't even know what he's talking about. Here's your only hope, Nicodemus. You have to be born again. Here's how John opened chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God were with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, better, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into a second a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, and here's Nicodemus' big hint that he misses, but this is where Jesus handed him 
on a platter what he was actually talking about. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus was saying to him, because Nicodemus knew the Old Testament quite well, better than we do, uh, Nicodemus was saying to him by those images, unless one has experienced what Ezekiel was talking about in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, there's no hope for that person. That's what he was saying to him. Unless you've experienced Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, you're a goner. Which was a way of saying, unless you've experienced a change that only God can cause from the inside out, You're a goner. Here's what the Ezekiel passage says. God is the speaker through Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. So there's forgiveness. There's the forgiveness element. Verse 26, here's the part that only God can do from the inside out. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, that is a soft heart, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is to say, I will change you from the inside out because we are necessarily defiled by what comes out of us. Who we are necessarily defiles us unless who we are is redeemed, forgiven, begins to be transformed by the power of the Spirit. Has that ever happened to you? Has that happened to you? Have you had a fundamental change of heart about God and about his word Do you have a pretty clear understanding about yourself? I am a wicked soul. The thought that I could ever earn heaven, the thought that I would turn out to be good enough in the end, the thought that God would look at my life on judgment day and say, hey, not bad. Not bad. That's a ridiculous, ludicrous unbelievably blind thought. No! I'm nothing like that, and so you are not. But you can be forgiven. 
And God can begin to change you from the inside out. And he tends to produce that and start that to go full circle through hearing by giving you understanding, by causing you to despair of yourself and throw yourself in the mercy of God. As it says, and we said in our prayer this morning at the end of Psalm 2, to join the ranks of those who know that their only hope is to be among those who take refuge in God through Christ. Is that you? Be sure it's you. For as Jesus warned Nicodemus, there is no hope anywhere else. And you've defiled yourself countless times from the inside out. And that'll never change unless God helps you. So plead with him to help you. Hear his voice. Come to Christ. And he assures you, if you come to Christ and throw yourself on his mercy through Christ, he'll forgive you. He'll change you from the inside out. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to have your word, to understand it, to be changed by the power of your spirit. Lord, may that happen increasingly in our lives and across our congregation and this city and this country and the world. The only hope of the world is Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The only hope, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.